Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Voices of the Community, an Indie Star podcast where we feature people who impact the city of Indianapolis and or our state of Indiana. My guest for this episode is Julie Kratz, founder of Next Pivot Point, which offers diversity, equity, and inclusion services for the workplace. In addition, Kratz is an author of several books. Pivot Point, How to Build a Winning Career Game Plan, one, how male allies support women for gender equality. Lead like an ally, a journey through corporate America with strategies to facilitate inclusion and allyship in action. Ten practices for living inclusively. And we're not finished. She also has a children's book, Little Allies. How cute. In addition to being an entrepreneur and author, Kratz is also a TEDx speaker. Welcome, Julie, and thank you for joining me today. Oh, my gosh. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) You are doing some interesting work. Tell me about Next Pivot Point and what led you to DEI. Yeah, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think, has always been inside me, that passion. But until recently, we didn't really have the vocabulary Mm -hmm. or the words. Mm -hmm. DEI is a fairly new acronym Mm -hmm. in the business world. And, um, you know, if I really dialed it back to my inner eight-year-old feminist self, (laughs) it was hearing a sexist joke, you know, with a kid. I remember at my babysitter just being so appalled by that. And then, you know, as you grow up and go through life and For me, like most white people, I grew up in a very white, dominant community. Mm -hmm. But I was always curious about people that were different from me. And growing up in Columbus, Ohio, because of the university, there were just so many different types of people Mm -hmm, there. mm -hmm. And when I went there for school, I just remember gravitating towards folks that had different lived experiences from myself and learning more Mm -hmm. from people different from me. But when I came into corporate early 2000s, you know, I remember my my single mother, she had said, you know, the world is equal. Those feminists took care of it. Civil rights made it all good for people of color. You know, I entered the workforce and go into construction, <laughs> manufacturing. And it's like all white dudes and me all the time. Like, where'd they all go? Where'd everyone else go? And it was that theme through my 12 years in corporate that just made it super obvious that people like me didn't really feel you know, seen. We didn't feel heard. We certainly didn't feel a sense of belonging. And I'm white. You mm-hmm. know, I'm straight. I, I'm cisgender. Um, I am able-bodied. So I have tons of privileges and advantages associated with a lot of my identities. But just because of gender alone... I just couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been doing this work in corporate spaces mostly for the last eight years. And you know, people like to tell me it's gotten better. And, 
you know, same rhetoric I got from my mom. And it's just unfortunately not true. We've got a big problem. And uh, the summer of 2020 woke a lot of people up. Mm-hmm. But it's not enough. Well, and I wonder how long that's going to last. And like your mom, so many people thought like your mom. So many people thought we've made it. Yep. Everything's okay now. And it's only until you get into that space that you're like, we didn't make it. And then you're, well, toughen up. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> you know, I was talking this morning with a local leader and she said, you know, in talking with her board, that's you know, pr- predominantly the majority group, white men, she said, uh, well, they just told him, said, but, well, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, just work your way out of it. And, you know, her and I both grimaced together, but just like, how do I show people that haven't had these experiences mm-hmm. that other people have different experiences because they haven't experienced them themselves? So part of the work is getting people that don't have those those lived experiences to experience them through the lens of someone mm-hmm. else mm-hmm. and to empathize mm-hmm. and to know that you'll never fully understand mm-hmm. because for me I always I always like to start out talks with I have white skin so I can't fully understand the lived experiences of people of color but it's my job as an ally as someone that hopes to be an ally anyway to better understand, mm-hmm. to learn, to mm-hmm. educate myself, not put that burden on others to educate me <laughs> and to not show up with my cape and rescue. I'm going to save the day mode, which I've made that mistake before. Um, but to really educate myself and to listen to people's stories and to believe them when they share the hard truths and the things that they didn't have any control over. We don't get to choose where we're born, who we're born to, what our skin color is, you know, our, our biological sex. Like all of this is predetermined. And so when people say things like, you know, pick up your bootstraps or whatever, it's like, well, you didn't really choose. You just got lucky. It's it's the draw, luck of the draw. And I think when people get curious about that, then they can come at it from a more empathetic place mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Wow, you said so much there. <laughs> I want to unpack it all, but <laughs> we have so much time. But yeah, that is so key, though, is is one thing you said, believing them. When they tell you, believe them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is so key, though. I have to just make sure we, we highlight that point. Well, because people gaslight people a lot in those situations, meaning... They kind of blame the victim. Well, why were you there? What did you say? What did you do? And it's like, wait a second. I'm the one that's experiencing a non-inclusive or perhaps very exclusionary discriminatory act. And I'm the one to blame. And then what do people learn from that? It's like, I'm not going to speak up. I'm not Mm going to share my story. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to quiet quit an organization or leave (laughs) now. I think people really have learned a lot about themselves and their values and are unwilling to compromise them. Yes. So DEI is in like this weird space now. (laughs) As there's uh, been a lot of pushback happening. So people say they want DEI in their workplace. You know, they're talking about how important it is. They go and they hire DEI officers. And then we've seen those people quit after a few months on the job uh, or they're fired after a few months on the job. Um, So let's talk about what's happening there. 
is and is doing uh, the work of it's part of it was happening is doing the work of creating an environment that's welcoming to and inclusive of everyone more work than what was imagined is it more challenging than they anticipated so is that kind of what's going on there yeah yeah a lot of that a lot of that i mean the tenure for a dei leader is less than two years wow right and i think that says it all so what i hear it's not because they're not passionate about it it's not because they're not working hard is the systems are so broken Mm -hmm. to support them that it's very daunting and almost near impossible to influence organizational change so one of the things one of the big gaps is resources and budget Mm. yeah i just had a conversation with a potential client and she said i got into this dei role because i'm really passionate about it i don't know a lot about it just because i'm passionate about it just because i'm a brown skin does not mean i know everything about this oh really (laughs) to educate myself (laughs) still too and then I'm not given a budget or much of a budget. And the senior leaders are kind of waffling. You know, there's a few that get it, a few that don't get it. And so it's like do this DEI training on a dollar. Yeah. And it's, make change happen in three months. Yeah. Yeah. But Real, don't talk about anything that we're not going to like. And don't make anybody <laughs> feel uncomfortable. So there's usually like three camps in most of the talks I give. There's the get it camp. And then they're the ones that are there. They really don't need to be there. They already understand what I'm The choir. Yes. Preaching to the choir. Exactly. <laughs> And then there's the do not get it camp, and they may not want to get it, and then they can cause a stir because, you know, the word privilege just going to send them on a tailspin. I've had people slam laptops before. <laughs> it's like, what? what? We should unpack why that's so hurtful to you. And then largely, though, and I think this is a good news with corporate and, and just the, the way the world's going is most people are like in the murky middle or the magic middle. Mm-hmm. Like to call they, they want to get it. But they, they just don't get it yet. And I think that's our real opportunity to engage okay. folks that are well-intentioned, but they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. And if we're waiting for perfect allies, we're going to be waiting forever. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a lot of work on us to get it, but just to like nudge them, pull them into the conversation. And that's what a lot of DEI folks are, are trying to do is to reach more of that mass that really needs to get it, that scared you know, they're afraid to say the wrong thing. Yep. Instead of just saying it and then let's talk about that and fix it. But they're so afraid. And so that what the resistance is, too, is that people feel attacked and afraid. There's just a lot of on the defense. Um, as I stated earlier, if someone tells you the way, well, if someone tells you the way you're thinking or the way you feel and everyone, you know, they think it's wrong. Now I feel attacked. And, and, and so I'm not really listening. Um, is that kind of what may be happening inside people is that they're feeling, like you said, someone slammed down yeah. the laptop because you said privilege. And and I know the first thing they say is, I don't have any privilege. I worked hard. Mm-hmm. Well, no one said you didn't work hard. I deserve the things I have. Like, yeah. No one said you didn't deserve that either. What did you hear there? Right. Yes. And, and that's it. I mean, that's what I noticed. The fear fra- factor is very, that fear is very real inside people's brains. And because they've probably had an experience or two where perhaps someone didn't handle the situation well and shamed and blamed them. Like I always advise shame and blame really doesn't belong in a positive 
hopefully a behavior changing conversation. Mm -hmm. Because if you want someone to change behavior, you know, helping them understand why their behavior is problematic is the first step. Mm -hmm. And there's a framework in the DI world that I love. It's separating intention from impact. Mm. So you could still honor, hey, you had good intentions. The impact wasn't what you had hoped, though. Mm. And, and just common microaggressions, I think, for people just really throw people. Well, I was just curious. I just really wanted to know where they were from. Yeah, but do you ask white people that? <laughs> no. Yeah, well, their English is really good. Well, again, oh, oh, that's not would you good, say that to an American? That's not a good thing to say. <laughs> yeah, would you say that to someone that looks like you? And people don't understand because it sounds like a compliment. What they don't understand is that person has probably answered that question or heard that backhanded comment dozens, if not hundreds of times. You know, the one that really got me when I entered this work, when I compared notes with women of color, because I noticed they weren't coming to women's conferences. It was all white women kind of talking to each other about feminism and white feminism. It's a whole other issue. Yes, it is. But I thought, well, what the heck's going on here? Like, why? Where? My, my friends of color are coming. And, you know, you unpack it and you hear about the things that well-intentioned white women will do. You know, hair touching, uh, asking inappropriate questions, you know, and... I'm horrified. <laughs> now, for myself being a part of this group, I'm like, oh, shoot, have I done these things, right? And so I think part of the fear, too, is you have to come to terms with, I have probably done these some of these things. Mm -hmm. I've been complicit with mm -hmm. the systems that mm -hmm. benefit me and do not benefit others. And when you're in a position of power, especially white men... It feels like all risk, no reward. It feels mm -hmm. like I have something to lose. That's not the way DEI works. It's not a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't mm -hmm. win, you lose. We all win collectively you're, together. Yes, you're saying something very key. There is this real perceived notion of losing something. I have to give up something. If I say I have privilege, that means I'm giving up something to take ownership of that. And it's not a zero-sum game like you said it's not giving up to say oh i have this and it makes a difference but that doesn't mean i still didn't work hard that doesn't mean i still don't work hard and that doesn't mean i don't deserve what i have that's not what anyone's saying but it has definitely felt as if and you're blaming me for something that happened 300 years ago exactly <laughs> yeah i had nothing to do with that <laughs> right. But you do have to do with upholding the systems that are still alive and well today. I mean, whether that's voting rights, education, housing, redlining. I mean, I could go on the prison system. I mean, there are just so many systems that we benefit from racially and from a gender perspective. And so I often think with the P word, as we affectionately call it in our world, is that's a chance to be an ally for somebody. And no one's asking you to give your power away. They're asking for you to share it. And I think when we come at it from a place of power with together mm. instead of power over, then it shifts the conversation. And this is how you learn. This is how you grow. I mean, when you ask people at the end of their lives what their happiest moments were, almost unanimously people say helping other people or the relationships they have with mm -hmm. people that are close to them. Mm -hmm. And that's what allyship is, is supporting folks, especially folks that are different from yourself. And in the receiving end of that, 
I like to think you become a better human. Like I'd like to think I've become a better listener, empathizer, partner, caregiver. Because of these skills, it's made me better, not worse. And I haven't lost anything. I've gained insight, education, relationships, how to have hard conversations. <laughs> so to me, it's all reward, not risk. So what I'm hearing is allyship is a very little thing, but a very big thing. It doesn't take this big, we don't have to, you don't have to go to training. You don't have to do anything major, but that little thing that you do, that you're doing has major effects. Mm -hmm. So you just determine I'm going to be an ally and then do it. Yeah. So it doesn't mean you have to go to an allyship class. No, no. (laughs) I mean, there's so many ways to self-educate yourself and consume content or, you know, Better yet, develop relationships and diversify your network. Um, But it is. It's the subtle yet intentional, consistent acts over time that add up. And whenever someone's getting started on their journey, that's what I say is like, because the feedback I've gotten from people I hope to be allies for is keep talking. (laughs) Keep talking. Because what I'm reminded of with a lot of my areas of privilege is people listen to me differently because it doesn't look like I have something to gain from talking about disabilities or LGBTQ plus or anti-racism. And I like to think (laughs) that if something's not fair for somebody because of something, especially they can't control, like I need to call attention to that. Mm -hmm. Like it's not fair, Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't directly impact me. It it does Mm -hmm. because if it's not fair for one person, it's not fair for, for all of us. Mm-hmm. And we all live in this world together. Right. Those are our fellow humans. Mm-hmm. And so when people hate somebody because of their skin color or their religion or their politics, it's like, we're human beings. Like, we're all humans at the end of the day. Like, I got to find a way to look past some of these things. And it can just be so polarizing. But it's very easy to other people. We love to other people. Mm-hmm. So that, therefore, we can feel superior and that we can also feel... They're wrong. I'm right. <laughs> yeah. And and then you can, when you other them, you can then demonize them. You can take away their you, yes. you can take away their humanity. And that's that's how historically wars have been fought. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was uh, Jewish persecution. I mean, we're seeing it now in Russia. Like it's just it, by dehumanizing people, that's how you get people to do awful things to each other. And we have to look at each other's humanity, and we have to look beyond our differences because there's probably a lot more in common than there are of course there's differences there's also a lot of commonalities i think we look past yes you used a nicer word than me you said dehumanize i said demonize so <laughs> well, both, we're right. gonna we're gonna go with your word because that's much much nicer they're both i mean both obviously you can tell very problematic. you're trained and i'm not <laughs> No, no, no. Well, it, the reason I say that is because there is research on dehumanization. I wasn't trying to be smart No, no, about no, it. no, no, no. I didn't think so, but I thought, yeah, that's a much nicer word. That's a much, and makes people feel less attacked. Well, and it's people can see how they might have done that. Yes. Right? Those people. Yes. Like, they, they just don't work hard. You know, these these. Yeah, statements. I just straight out call them the devil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you're a certified unconscious and social emotional learning, social emotional learning trainer. Say that fast five times. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say most people 
never gave social emotional learning much thought <laughs> or even if they even heard of it uh, until last year <laughs> right. when it became a political football and was portrayed as some nefarious strategy to indoctrinate children into some liberal evil plot. Um, obviously, the devil is on my mind. I'm demon <laughs> evil. <laughs> what is social emotional learning and has the recent confusion made it challenging for you to do your work in that regard? Yeah, so social emotional learning, or we love to use our acronyms, SEL, yes. um, somehow got lumped into critical race theory and CRT, which is, by the way, not being taught in school. It's a college level course. For those who even take it in college. Right, exactly. I never, <laughs> I never heard of this, and I was a women's studies minor in college. So, like, people just, they run with something. I think 75% of Americans still don't know what CRT is. But they all hate like it. it. <laughs> yeah. So, rest assured, not being taught in schools. Um, and if it is, that's it, just so rare. SEL, though, has been taught in schools for quite some time. And so it's just teaching kids how to identify their emotions and how to manage their emotions and influence the emotions of others. And most people, when you ask them, adults, to name emotions, most adults can only name three different emotions. Anger. <laughs> Happy, Happy, sad. sad. Mad. Yeah. yeah. Happy, sad, mad. Like, wow. And I love the research that Brene Brown did. You know, she has 87 different emotions that you can map to. So, like, understanding the nuances between jealousy and envy. And, you know, this isn't even where we're going with our kids in school. But as adults, being able to label our emotions, name them, to be able to process them. Because we are emotional creatures. We are a social species. We no, are. it's just women who are emotional, right? right? Women are. We are conditioned <laughs> to socialize that women are more free to express emotions, and we ask men to stuff their emotions. Except anger. Right. Except anger. Um, and, and the person who slammed the laptop could have used some social emotional learning. Can you imagine if that was a black woman that did that? I mean, the behaviors yes. we tolerate from the majority group. Um, the amount of sexual harassment that still goes on, um, abuse. And when we don't understand our emotions or don't teach kids how to process their emotions, they either learn to keep them inside, which is impossible because emotions need to complete a cycle and they need to be recognized in order to oh, keep really? them in. And so they, they, I, a trick question I ask sometimes in class is, uh, how long do you think an emotion stays inside your body? And it's kind of a trick question because it's not hours or days even. It's until you process it. Until you process Yes. So that's why grief yes. can be so lingering. Anger. Yes. Anxiety. All those things, until you process them, they're still there. Trauma. Well, an intergenerational trauma is something that's really interesting for the black community. As I'm sure you know, like we don't realize that these emotions get passed down through our ancestry. Yes. Over time. So what your grandparents experienced, even though that was only two generations ago, I mean, we have folks, their grandparents were enslaved. Like, think about that. Like, we're not that far from a very dark, awful past. And we're not that much better with what we're no, doing. And, and the things that they taught their children, there's a reason why people behave the way they behave. Because a lot of times it was about survival. I remember my dad saying growing up, he knew family members who wouldn't look white people in the eye because they were taught don't look in the eye because of what their parents taught them because their parents grew up in a time when you couldn't do that. And when you think about that's still here 
and passed down that and, and trauma and things we don't even know is still in your in your in your DNA. Mm -hmm. When you start really looking at things, it's it gets deep. Yeah. And, and then it gets uncomfortable. It does. <laughs> it does. And, and I think, too, you know, it, you might be thinking, you know, as a white person, maybe we don't have as much of that as part of our past. But like we have a lot of folks that have immigrated that have had to flee unsafe conditions and their ancestors home country. So this affects all human beings. And it's not um, a comparison. Can we get into the comparison Olympics? <laughs> I've had yes, this harder. Like, <laughs> that's also a big downfall uh, or caveat, I would say, to privilege work is like, it's not me saying comparative suffering. Like, yes. it's just, hey, well, I my got parents some stuff. came from. <laughs> I got some stuff too. It's not the same as your stuff, but let's talk about our stuff together. <laughs> And I'll never forget, I had a white Southern man in one of my uh, unpacking racism courses that I, we teach. And his, his like one of his favorite colleagues at work was a woman of a black woman in the South. And they, they go through their lived experiences and go through a privilege activity and compare notes, which was very brave for both of them. And he said, he's like, the stuff she said she experienced was, I could not believe it. Right. But mm -hmm. I had experienced some things with socioeconomics that she hadn't experienced because she was from a more affluent class, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. unusual in that exercise. But it does happen. And he said, but I realized really quickly the hardships I had 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 nothing to do with my race, whereas all of her hardships had to do with her race and her gender. And it's like that's a big eye opener yes. for people. They just don't see it until you. And I always say, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't it. unsee it. You can't unsee it. And then you're like me, stay up at night and get angry all the time because <laughs> nothing's changing. <laughs> I wish I could turn the switch off. <laughs> yeah, that's probably something you can't do. Um, since we're talking about children to a certain extent, um, about issues that affect children, rather, you also have a children's book that I mentioned earlier, Little Allies. Again, I think that's just a cute name. <laughs> Again, why do you think it's important to teach children about allyship? Um, as this, I think I know, but I want you to have a chance to express why you think it's important. Oh, yeah. Oh, geez. So, summer 2020, <laughs> you know, I'm sure everyone can vividly remember what was going on in the world, but you know, I was pregnant, had a six-year-old, had a business that was floundering, like many small businesses, until, of course, George Floyd, which made me feel such shame and guilt around, um... So anyway, I'm having these conversations with my kiddo at the time, and I'm obsessed. I mean, I was just obsessed with documentaries about race, you know, watching everything. And, and a lot of it's really sad. Mm -hmm. And so there I am, white woman tears, you know, with my box of <laughs> tissues. And Jane would come in and be like, Mom, are you crying about black people again? again? <laughs> it's like, well, I don't understand why people keep hurting them, Mom. Racism doesn't make sense. And I'm like trying to explain to a six-year-old and it wasn't working, you know, <laughs> like, shoot, if I am struggling with this and I do this work for a living, I bet there's a lot more people that struggle with this. And, you know, I was really trying to get my hands on children's books that talked about diversity, which that has gotten a bit better mm -hmm. since. But it always. Before they ban them. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So weird. Um they always isolated diversity dimension. So it was always about race. And it was very overt. Let's mm -hmm. talk about race. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. a kid doesn't, that's not a book they're going to pull off a bookshelf mm -hmm. very often. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's important. 
or gender identity or LGBTQ or disability, there was never an intersectional lens on it. And so I thought, well, what if we could tell a story where the main characters all had a different lived experience that they could bring their story into kind of vignette style book. And at the same time, I had learned um, through my unconscious bias training that biases are pretty well baked at age 12. Mm. But kids, you know, my six-year-old couldn't quite process complex topics a 12, that a 12-year-old could. So there's this whole, like, progression that needs to happen in K through 5. And this is why we're seeing such a heated debate about what's going on in K through 5 classrooms is that's really when you frame your lens of the world and your biases. So if you don't have exposure to other races, ethnicities, people that speak different languages, gender identities, LGBTQ, disability – it becomes much harder to address your biases later. Now, of course, we can manage your biases later in life, but it's like we have to slow down our brain, intervene with it. The stereotype is in there. We can't really get it out. So what if we could have more inclusive experiences and more conversations in those formative years? Wow. And we're not. And then when we do, people are pushing back in a weird, strange way. And my question always is, is like, what are you afraid of? Hey, or what is it you would need to understand about DEI to feel more comfortable with it? And, and it's then you're just like, well, I don't want them teaching about sex. Like, that's not what's happening here. <laughs> I, I don't want my kids to like, turn gay. It's like, what? Or white kids to feel shame. And that's just, Dr. Ibram Kendi has studied this, a great work with anti-racism and there is absolutely no evidence that white children feel shame when they learn about racism. It actually empowers them to understand the world around them and it invites them into the conversation. So these fears, you know, letting are it, adult fears. Exactly. They're not kid fears. They don't they, kids don't process things in that way. It is definitely the adults. Yep. And and we fear what we don't understand. So your kid comes to you. Because you didn't have this learning as a kid. <laughs> now, they talk about their emotions. And you're like, I only know three. Shoot. You know, it's like that as adults, like, think about what are you really afraid of? You're probably afraid of being irrelevant. You're probably afraid of not having the answers. Of course, we want to protect our children, but we're not protecting our children from keeping them from a world that they're bound to experience later in life. We are in a global world. <laughs> they can't be sheltered forever. We we could do this all day because I'm just I'm just learning so much from you. <laughs> but we are nearing the end, and at the end of each episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to talk about anything they want um, that the audience should know, but maybe I missed. I'm still going to let you do that. However, I wanted to end it a little differently. I wanted to highlight a few sentences in your book because to me. It encompasses like what you do. And I wanted to give you a chance to speak about the passage and then share anything else you want listeners to know about Next Pivot Point and your DEI work. So in your book, Allyship in Action, you wrote, we need more white, straight, cisgender, non-disabled people involved in this conversation. White women are in a unique position to be allies for change. Torn between the systems of patriarchy that we do not benefit from and the systems of white supremacy that we do benefit from, white women have been taught to hold back. 
We have our own gendered experience to empathize from, yet that is far from understanding deep-rooted racism, ableism, and homophobia. By our proximity to the hierarchy of white men, we have a great deal of influence, where the lion's share of wealth and decision-making lies. We also have the proximity to the next generation of little allies as educators. Yeah. Wow. Can I just say, wow, you, you said a, a word right there. Well, <laughs> it's, it shouldn't be well, but I appreciate that. It's like white women need to do better. You know, I, we haven't had a great track record with this, how we have voted or how we have leveraged our proximity to power. Um, and a lot of that's systemic. It's taught from the time we're a little bitty to fall in line, don't question things, take what you can get, please others. And it, it almost feels like I remember even being taught in my women's studies class as an undergrad way back, you know, 20 some years ago. It was like, we got to be careful because issues of race have always come before issues of gender. And when you're taught that, you know, and it's seeded in you that somehow it's a divide and conquer strategy that's very effective at working. And we've seen this with the suffrage movement. We've seen this with feminism over the years with Black Lives Matter. It's, it's this we're fighting different fights and, and that keeps us less strong. Right? If we're collectively all together, we have a lot more of us than we have of them. But if we're all separate and fighting different fights, then we can't unify and fight upward. And we're fighting each other. So I would just say a call to action for white women is really think about what sources of power you have. You know, maybe you have family members with wealth that could be doing more to address systemic change. Um Maybe in your local community, you could influence things, right? Think about the places you gather. And I think as a caregiver, one of the things that white women really need to work on, because our, if our kids aren't exposed to differences from a young age, we run into all those bias problems later. Be intentional about the experiences you create for your kiddo. Go into communities that are different from you. Have them experience other ethnic cultures as much as you can. It's not that hard to do, but it's also not easy to do. Mm -hmm. You have to do your homework. You have to do your research. Mm -hmm. But really ask, and if you're really unclear and you can't find an answer in a Google search, you know, ask friends, ask your allies what they recommend you do. I've gotten so many amazing ideas over the years, but it had to start again with that intentionality. And I just, I think as a white woman, I, I, I feel guilty that we haven't done better over the years and i really also think we have a huge opportunity to lean into this conversation now more than ever saying enough's enough we got to fight together we're stronger together as allies across all the dimensions of diversity wow wow again <laughs> well julie thank you so very much for joining me today you've enlightened me and hopefully so many others thank you Oh, thanks for having me. This was fun. On the next episode of Voices of the Community, we will speak with Barado Brett, Executive Director of Edna Martin Christian Center. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. 
from the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.